0: to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Welcome back to another Truth in My Day's apologetics program with John and Adrian Tors. We're going to continue to discuss how we can know what books belong in the Bible.:
1: So the Roman Catholic Magisterium model doesn't work, and this evangelical model doesn't work, so how do we know the books in the New Testament are the ones that should be there?
2: Good question. What we do is go to internal evidence in the New Testament.
1: Internal evidence? What do you mean?
2: I mean that there are statements in the New Testament that allow us to deduce how the canon was defined.
1: Isn't that a circular argument?
2: No, because the facts I will point out do not depend on us first assuming those books are canonical. Interesting. Go on. Okay. First, please read for us First Timothy 5.18.
1: For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages.
2: Now, we do not have to assume that 1 Timothy is canonical here. All we have to note is that it was written probably around the year AD 63, certainly before Paul died. And here, Paul quotes two passages, both of them being designated as scripture. The first is from Deuteronomy 25.4. But the second one, you can search through the entire Old Testament, you won't find it. Where you will find it, in fact, is Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So two passages from Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, both designated as Scripture. The significance of this cannot be overrated. It means that when 1 Timothy was written, the gospel according to Luke was already considered to be scripture, and it was accepted as such by Paul's readers. He does not make any attempt whatsoever to argue that the gospel according to Luke is scripture. He doesn't say, the scripture says, quotes, he says, oh, by the way, folks, gospel according to Luke, it's scripture. Surprise. No, he clearly expects his readers already to be familiar with this fact and to accept it.
1: Wow, that is impressive.
2: There is more. Read for us, please, 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16.
1: Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures.
2: Notice that here, Peter speaks of all of Paul's epistles and the rest of the scriptures. All of Paul's epistles and the rest of the scriptures makes it clear that, for Peter, Paul's letters are, in fact, scripture. He, too, makes no attempt to introduce this claim as if it were a new claim or to defend it, which indicates his readers already know and accept it. That Paul's letters are scripture. His comment even suggests that Paul's letters may already have been collected and circulated among the churches so that Peter's readers were familiar with them.
1: Okay, that's crucial.
2: Indeed. It means that some of the books in our New Testament were already considered and without controversy to be scripture before the New Testament was even completed. And that means that they must have received canonical status long before any church council had anything to say on the matter and long before any church leaders decided long after the fact that, hey, we should canonize some books. And if this was the case with some of the New Testament books, it is reasonable to suppose that it happened to all of them.
1: So does that mean that we can decide which books are scriptures? all from internal evidence.
2: Uh, Yes. The question then is how this happened. What conferred canonical status on the New Testament books at such an early time? Who had the authority to designate books as scripture? There was, in fact, only one authority capable of doing so, and that's the apostles themselves. And this makes perfect sense. These were the men chosen by Jesus himself for uh, Mark 3, 13 to 19 and Acts oneone 1 to 2 to be the foundation of the church, along with the prophets who had written the Old Testament scriptures, as suggested in Ephesians 2:20. The apostles were chosen to be the authoritative leaders responsible for passing on the doctrines of the new covenant. Uh, their time to do this in person was, of course, limited to their own lifetimes on earth, as apostolic authority was not something that could be passed on to future generations. But their time was enough to create and authorize all of the New Testament scriptures, which among them contain all that we need to be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work per 2 Timothy 3.17. No other authoritative source of doctrine is needed or possible.
1: Do you mean the apostles themselves decided that what they wrote is authoritative?
2: Well, indeed, they did what they or their representatives in the case of the gospel according to Mark, for example. Mark was recording uh, Peter's testimony, so Peter would have been the one to authenticate Mark. Uh, Paul would have authenticated Luke's writings, which include the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, Now... There are, in fact, indications that the apostles intended that books of scripture should be the means for the conveying of the apostolic doctrine to future generations. Uh, Peter, for example, in uh, 2 Peter 1:12 to 15 writes this, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So here Peter is pointing out that as long as he is alive, he can continue teaching the doctrine in person. But with his impending death in view, he must provide some other means for the continuing teaching of this doctrine, And in light of what he writes in his next letter, it seems undeniable that this reminder is written scripture. In 2 Peter 3.1, he writes, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Uh, Paul also indicates that he has written the epistle to the Romans as a reminder in Romans 15.15.
1: Okay, I see. Is there
2: more? There's one more passage, and that is of great importance to this matter. Uh, The statement in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 15, where Paul writes, For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart.
1: What's the significance of that?
2: Let me explain it this way. When I was 11, I started reading the Doc Savage books. A series of action-adventure novels, 182 of them, which I read and reread. Now, they were originally published between 1933 and 1949. Now, I noticed that in the ones published before 1939, somewhere between 1933 and 1939, they sometimes mentioned World War I, but they never called it World War I. It was always the Great War or the World War. See, they never called it World War I because at that time, no one knew there'd be a second one. The World War didn't become World War I until there was a World War II. Now let's look at this passage again, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 15. It starts with, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Now, in that Paul says reading, he must be referring to a written work. He says, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. The reading of the what? The Old Testament. And in case there's a question about that, the passage continues because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. What is read here? Moses, the books of Moses, the Torah, which per this passage is from the Old Testament. So here's the salient point. As with the World War, no one would call it World War I until there's a World War II. Why would anyone refer to the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, the written work as the Old Testament, unless there was a written New Testament? Good question. It seems clear to me that no one would refer to a written Old Testament until and unless there was a written New Testament.
1: That seems to make sense. But if this is the case, why were some of the New Testament books, such as Hebrews and 2 Peter, challenged by some church leaders? And why would the church have to call councils in the 4th century to make an official canon?
2: Well, an awful lot changed between the 1st and 4th centuries. The death of the apostles first, waves of persecutions and book burnings, the proliferation of those fake gospel books and writings and religious movements. And then especially in the 4th century, the early 4th century, the legalization of Christianity by the Emperor Constantine in the year 313 led to the filling of the church with unconverted pagans We essentially took control. Now with all of these things going on, it wouldn't be surprising that the facts of authorship might've been lost to some and never known by the new leaders who had come to take over. Uh, nevertheless, for the reasons we went over, the idea that there was no canon until the late fourth century is not possible. And the fact that some books were challenged long after the fact for a variety of reasons, idiosyncratic reasons, by some church leaders, does not override the testimony that we have seen in the New Testament itself.
1: Well, this is not what you will read in the textbooks, is it? Not even the evangelical textbooks.
2: No, but it is what the evidence shows. The only viable conclusion from what we have seen is that the books of the New Testament Were recognized as scripture immediately upon publication and were accepted as such by Christians because apostles themselves designated these books as scripture. And so we have certainty about the canonicity of the 39 books in our Old Testament and the 27 books in the New Testament. We can be sure that these are the books God wanted us to have. God made no mistake in ensuring we could know. And I guess this is a salutary lesson again that we need to look at evidence, we need to revisit evidence. An awful lot of scholarship has has, uh, reached the point where they simply accept old ideas, pass them on without ever really examining the evidence. And I think we need to do that. And that's what Truth In My Days as an apologetics organization does do.
1: Thank you, John, for explaining to us How the Bible came about seems like it's very, very important to always look at the evidence and to think critically about the evidence.
2: Thank you.
0: If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth in My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, me, we, and YouTube. Simply search Truth in My Days as one word. Again, Truth in My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.